0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So we're going to spend some time in Romans chapter 8. So there's good reason why Romans 8 is called the greatest chapter of the greatest book in the Bible. Romans is kind of maybe the the best summary of the Bible in one particular book of the Bible. And out of Romans, chapter 8 is the pinnacle of of Romans. The greatest chapter of the greatest book in the Bible. Think context here. So think about what the book of uh, Romans The book of Romans, in particular, Romans chapter eight is teaching us. So you get to to Romans eight, verse one, Paul announces this promise. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So right before you get to that promise, Romans eight, one, Paul is in, in Romans seven. And in Romans seven, Paul is just staring again at the size and the severity of his sin. So he is realizing the things that I don't wanna do, I just keep doing these things. And the things I wanna do, I have a hard time consistently doing those things. He's just confronted once again with the size and severity of his sin. And just like all of us, when we're confronted with the size and severity of our sin, we start to think things about God. We have an innate sort of script developed that sounds something like this. There is no way after the 10,000th time of falling to this same sin, there is no way God could still love me. That The day has to come when God looks at me and just kind of washes his hands from me. That, that I've sinned so often, I've sinned so big that there's gotta be this moment where God just backs away and says, I've, I've tried everything I know to try. I've given it a, a good shot, but I just can't do any more with you. He, he's addressing that innate sense that we all have when we see our sin, when, when we know how deep and how dark it gets. And Paul is reminding us of God's promise in, in Romans 8, 1, that for those who are in Christ, if you're a son or daughter of God, God is telling us in Romans 8, 1, that his smile will never turn into a frown, that his love will never turn back into judgment for us. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then throughout Romans 8, the Holy Spirit just blows into the scene. He he, he is the topic of conversation throughout Romans 8. And one way to think about Romans 8 is it's God through Paul announcing this to us. It's Paul reminding us that God's precious provision, his precious gift to weak, struggling and failing Christians like you and me, like the church in Rome, God's precious gift to weak, struggling and failing Christians is the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us. Now watch what the Holy Spirit is doing in Romans chapter 8. Let me just give you a sampling of this. In Romans chapter 8 verse 2, the Holy Spirit liberates us from the oppressive power of the law. In verse 4, he empowers us to fulfill the law's righteous requirements. In verse 9, the Holy Spirit lives in us. In verse 10, the Holy Spirit gives life to our spirits. In verse 11, he will one day give life to our mortal bodies too. Then in verses 12 and 13, the Holy Spirit enables us to kill sin rather than coddle sin. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit leads us. In verse 15, the Holy Spirit gives us a new identity as sons and daughters of God. In verse 16, the Holy Spirit enables us to experience this new identity, to actually have our identity as as sons and daughters of God felt in our hearts. Then in verses 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, even in the weakness of praying. Do, Do you know when like your life with God gets so bad that you can't even pray to God? Paul is saying the Holy Spirit's right there to help you. That This is God's provision for weak, failing and struggling Christians. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit. Then you get to verses 17 through 25. And Paul is announcing that there is an incredibly bright future for all of his sons and daughters. That this future is so bright with God. Heaven, eternity with God is so bright that it's going to make every moment of suffering in this life seem really insignificant. It's gonna make it feel really small. Like the moment we enter into eternity with God, it's gonna make every hardship we've ever endured seem like a small and insignificant moment. And then you get to the pinnacle of Romans chapter eight in verses 28, 29, and 30, where Paul says, and we know that for those who love God and, are, and all things are gonna work out for the good. For, for those who love God, all things are working out for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So think about what's happening in the first 30 verses of Romans eight. Paul is laying out before us Promise after promise from Jesus. Promise after promise that flows from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you get to the last nine verses of Romans chapter eight. The first 30 verses, Paul saying, let me help you see all that you have and all that you are in Jesus. Then you get to the last verses and it's showing our response but Paul goes, the first 30 verses, let me help you see it in the last nine verses. He's saying, let me show you how to sing now in response to what you have seen. Let me show you what this should actually do to your soul when you see all of these precious promises unfold before you. So when you get to the last nine verses of Romans 8, it comes, those last nine verses come in six questions. Today, I wanna take the first two of those questions and they're both found in Romans eight thirty-one. The first two questions in that last section of Romans eight, both of them are found in verse 31. Here is question number one, Romans eight, verse 31. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What should we, to all these things that we have just seen in Romans 8, 1 through 30, what should we say to these things? In a lot of ways, that question serves as the introductory question that kind of sets up the, the rest of Romans chapter 8. But let me just take it in a few parts. Uh, look at that word we. What then shall we say to these things? Look at that word we. That's a unique we because it's like a, it's, maybe the best way to think of it is like a preaching we. Paul is saying, okay, we've just seen all of these incredible things. These things are all of the the promises in the first 30 verses of Romans chapter eight. We've just seen these things and he's saying, my heart's been moved by those things. It is doing something to me. And, and, And saying we, like what then shall we say to these things? Paul's saying, and I hope it's affecting your heart too. I hope it's doing something to you too. I hope it's having this effect on you too. And this question, what then shall we say to these things? You know, maybe you could think about that question as an invitation from Paul to think, to think about what has happened in the first 30 verses of Romans 8, to to think through them, to apply them, to bring them to bear on your lives. Like Paul's burden is he doesn't want a single son or daughter of God to live below their privileges. He wants you to own every promise that God has given you to own. He doesn't just want you to know it, He doesn't just want you to see it. He doesn't just want you to to, to theoretically kind of know those promises. He wants you to possess those promises, to own it, to live your life in light of it. What then shall we say to these things? Maybe you could think about that question as an invitation from Paul to preach the good news of Jesus to yourself, to to take the the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of these wonderful promises that flow through Jesus and to preach them to ourselves. Now, what does it mean to preach the gospel to ourselves? This is just a simple, maybe definition or a way to think about that. What, What is that? It'll be on the screen for you. Preaching the gospel to yourself is rehearsing the precious promises of God so that those promises stay fresh in our forgetful minds. That is preaching the good news of Jesus to yourself. Rehearsing the promises of God so that those promises stay fresh in our forgetful minds to rehearse what we have and what we are in Jesus, to preach those things to ourselves. Now, when I think about the Christian life and what it, what it looks like to walk with the Lord, preaching the gospel to yourself, is, it's not the only habit that we need to form to help our relationship with the Lord. It's not the only habit we get, you know, need to get into the, you know, in the routine of, but it's certainly one of the most important habits that you can do, that I can do, that we can do every day in our life is preaching the gospel to ourselves. Now, why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but maybe this is the easiest way to make sense of it. Uh, When you wake up in the morning, isn't it amazing how fast life starts coming at you? Uh, C.S. Lewis, one time he said it this way. He said, when you wake up in the morning, it's as if your thoughts come at you like a pack of wild dogs. And I'm like, man, I get that. I don't know if that's just me, but that imagery, I'm like, yeah, that is what Monday morning at 8 a.m. feels like, right? That's what, when you start your day, that's what it feels like. Life just has a way of coming at you from a million different angles. And, And here's what life does as it's coming at you from all those angles. It has a way of grabbing your emotions, the way you feel about life, about God, about everything, and influencing those emotions. So that, everyone in the room is familiar with these sort of thoughts rolling through your brain. Those sort of thoughts of, there is no way God really cares for me. There is no way that God really loves me. After all the things I have done countless times, there's no way that God could still be in with me. If these things right now are happening in my life, If these sort of things have entered into my, there's no way God could love me if he's letting these things happen to me. If he's inserting these sort of things into my life. Every one of us have those sort of thoughts roll through our brain. Like when life happens to us, these are the sort of feelings and emotions toward God, thoughts toward God that we have. I'll never forget listening to a guy named Paul Tripp uh, teaching about this. And one of the things he said, i just never forget this phrase. He said, Did you know that you're the most influential person in your life? And here's the reason that you're the most influential person in your life, because no one talks to you more than you talk to you. Isn't that an interesting thought to think about? I mean, part of what it means to be a human being is that we are always talking to ourselves. We have this unending conversation that is happening every day, all day. We're an unending conversation. And because that unending conversation, if you could just get inside of my mind and inside of my heart and hear what it sounds like, here is what you would be probably shocked to find. It is an anti-gospel conversation. That script is full of anti-Romans 8. It's full of everything but the good news of Jesus. And I think if I could get into your mind and see what that script sounds like in your life, it would be just as anti-gospel as mine. And so I just kind of have this resolve in my life that my best sermons don't need to be for other people. They need to be for my own soul. Your best sermons in your life don't need to be for other people. They need to be to your own heart, Right? We're we're this unending conversation with ourselves, And Paul Tripp goes on to say that half of our trouble comes from listening to ourselves rather than preaching to ourselves. We we constantly listen to that anti-gospel script. And he's saying, no, Paul is inviting us to stop doing that. To to not listen to that anti-gospel script, but to preach the gospel to our own life, in our own heart. Listen to J.I. Packer talk about this commenting on this particular verse, Romans 8, 31. He says, you know, here's what Paul's saying in this question. Paul's saying, think think of what you know of God through the gospel and then apply it. Think against your feelings. Argue yourself out of the gloom that they have spread. Unmask the unbelief that they have nourished. Take yourself in hand. Talk to yourself, preach to yourself. Make yourself look upon your problems. Uh, Make yourself look upon... Up from your problems to the God of the gospel. By this means, so Paul believes, the indwelling Holy Spirit, whose ministry it is to assure us that we are God's beloved children and heirs, will lead us to the point where Paul's last triumphant inference, that the very end of Romans 8, where Paul says, I am sure that neither you know, death nor life nor anything else in all of God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord that as we preach the gospel to ourselves, the Holy Spirit in us will evoke from us the response as we read that, and so I am. I'm a person that that God's love will never stop coming to. God has set his affection on me and it's an undying affection. This is what Paul's inviting us into, to keep those truths of the gospel fresh in our forgetful minds, To, to keep those things alive, those promises of the gospel alive in our hearts, alive in our souls. So then comes the question, well, how do we, how do we preach the good news of Jesus to ourselves? What would that look like? And in some ways, the rest of Romans 8 is an example of what that might look like in your life and in my life. This, the second question gives clarity to that. So Paul says, what are we gonna say to these things? We've, we've just seen 30 verses of just gospel packed promises. So now what do we say to these things? And Paul's saying, let me give you one for instance of what you might wanna say. Let me give you one way that you can preach the good news of Jesus to your own heart. Here comes question number two. If God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, then who in this world could be against us and it really matter? Paul's saying this is one way you can take the truths of Romans 8, 1 through 30 and preach those to yourself. Keep those fresh in your mind. If God is for us, who can be against us? That is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can you just see the sort of defiant hope embedded into that verse? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's just work this passage out for a moment. What is Paul's point here? Like what is Paul, when you read that that phrase, if God is for us, who can be against us? What is Paul trying to convince us of? But what is he trying to say to us? What does he want us to experientially know of God in this moment? To know about our life in this moment? I think this is one way, maybe you could summarize that. I think it's Paul reminding us that no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for you. I want you to hear that again. No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for you. I mean, in essence, he's taking Romans 8.28 that all things are gonna work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's taking Romans 8:28 and he's just he's preaching that to himself. He's keeping that promise right in, front of his, right in front of his face. He's reminding himself that, that Paul, for, for me, no, no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by me or against me can block God's plans for me, Paul. He's preaching that to himself. Now think about this passage with pastoral logic. Paul isn't just writing random things in Romans 8. He is thinking about the church in Rome And then he's asking the question, in light of what I know about them, what they're struggling with, what could I write them that would be an encouragement to them? And so he's using pastoral logic. This is in response to what he knows about the people of Rome, right? So so what position would they be in for Paul to look at them and think, you know what they need to hear? If God is for you, who can be against you? But what position would they be in to need to hear that? I think this would be the, the answer to that. Paul's looking at a church and they're fearful, they're anxious, they're wrapped in a ball of worry, right? This is the, the position of the, the Roman church. He's writing to a people who feel beaten up and bruised by life, who feel like a million things in their life are against them. And just ask yourself the question, doesn't that sound a lot like us? beaten, bruised by life, fearful, anxious, wrapped up in a lot of worry. Now notice in this passage, Paul is not saying no one's against you. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul recognizes that there are plenty of things that are amassed against the people of God. And we could just go down the list of some of those things. Um, You might could start with Satan. The Bible presents a real Satan, a, a real person that is, actively opposed to and um, seeking to oppress the people of God. And the Bible presents him as a a defeated foe, but a not yet destroyed foe. So he's dying, but he's not yet dead. I kind of think of him oftentimes as a a kamikaze pilot. He's on a one-way mission to inflict as much damage as possible among the people of God. Satan is opposing the people of God. He's opposing you. He's opposing me. He's opposing us. Um, We could also talk about the flesh, The flesh is opposed to us. The flesh is that inner part of us, those inner desires in us that have been distorted and deformed by sin. That's the flesh in us. It's that that part of us that's still at war with God. And even when we become a child of God, that that old part of us, that fleshly part of us that, that distrusts God, it's dethroned in our life, but it's not yet destroyed in our life. Aren't we gonna be grateful for the moment we see Jesus face to face and the flesh is gone in us? That's gonna be a great day. But we're in the, the not yet of that. We still have some of that old person in us, that, that part of us that still has those desires that are deformed and distorted by sin, which is a humbling thing to consider. Like when I, when I think about my own life, it's so humbling for me to know that my worst enemy isn't out there, it's in here. That the person in my life that has disappointed me more than any other person is me. The person who has failed me more than any other person in life is not someone out there, it's me, right? The flesh in a a very real way is opposed to us, opposed to what God wants for us. So it's opposed to, uh, to us. Death is opposed to us. It's actively working against us. We're all living in the valley of the shadow of death. Death is lurking all the time in all of our lives. Sickness is an enemy that's opposed to us. Cancer is an enemy. Our bodies breaking up and breaking down. Those things can be against us. People can be against us. Paul knew this as well as anyone. Paul was the guy who was drugged outside of a town, stoned to the point where they all think he's dead. These are guys that are pretty experienced with this, right? They've beat him up enough to think the guy is dead. They leave him for dead. This is a guy who has been beaten 39 times, five times. I mean, this guy has endured incredible suffering at the hands of people. So people can be against us. In verse 37 of Romans 8, Paul just kind of gives us multiple things that can be against us. Tribulation can be against us. Distress can be against us. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. All of those things can be against us. There is so much that is against us that if you're like halfway sane and the only thing you see is what's against you, we should all be fearful. That's how much is against us. That if, you, if you've got any sort of sanity and you're looking at all of the, the forces amassed against us and that's all that you see, we should all be terrified in the room. So so there's plenty against us. But here's what Paul's doing with this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is saying, man, I I don't want you to stick your head in the sand and act like nothing is against you. I want you to be able to see the things that are against you because there's plenty that is is against you in life. There's plenty actively working against you. But I want you to be able to lift your eyes above what is against you. And I want you to take them up to God who is for you. That's what Paul wants in Romans 8.31. If God is for you, who can be against you? So look, look at, that, look at those, that first five words of that phrase. If God is for us, if God, let's just think about those two words. If God, the, the most important thought you're ever going to think in your life is the thoughts immediately following the word God. It determines everything about your life now, everything about your life in the future, What you think immediately following the word God is the most important thought you will ever think, which begs the question, who is God? And how did we like form our answer to that question? When we think about God, where did we get our thoughts of God from? And I think for most people in our culture, just kind of are living in and around our context, we typically pull our view of God, we sprinkle a little bit of Bible onto that view, a little bit of like our family tradition and what we've kind of grown up around onto that view of God, and a little bit of just the uh, cultural kind of folklore and the cultural kind of conceptions of who God is. We take some sprinkling of those things together, and when we think about God, we think through that lens, a God formed by those sort of things. Now, how do we fight against that? Like we don't wanna make God in our image. We don't want to form God and to make God like we see God. We wanna know who God is, who God is like who he said that he is. And so how do, how do we fight for that? How do we fight for a view of God that isn't like our view of him, but who he says he is? The only way to do that is to read the Bible and to ask the question, God, who do you say that you are in the Bible? Who do you reveal yourself to be? And there's this one moment in Genesis chapter 17 where God is talking, he's talking to us and then he talks about himself. He reveals part of himself to us. And in, in Genesis 17, one, God talks about himself like this. I am God almighty, that's who I am. If you wanna know what I am, who I am, if you wanna know what I look like, if you wanna know these things, here's what you need to know about me. Here's what God says about himself. I am God Almighty. Now, why does God say that? Why is God reminding us of who he is, that he is God Almighty? He's reminding us of that because he knows we need help consistently believing that he really is Almighty God. He knows we need help with that. So, and it's coming in the middle of a story that illustrates our need for help with this. Uh, Genesis 17 is written right into the mess of Abraham's life. So if you remember Abraham, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Uh, But there's a problem. And Abraham sees the problem really quickly. Uh, The problem is he and Sarah are out of like childbearing years. The Bible says they are well advanced in years at this point. So they are beyond baby making, right? So Abraham is in this moment of, he hears this promise from God on one hand, but he, he, he presently and, and, deep down in his bones can see and feel all that's against that promise. Things like his age, things like Sarah is well beyond childbearing years. So he hears the promise, but but then he sees all these things that are against the promise. And Abraham does what we so often do when the promises of God seem impossible in light of what's against those promises. He just begins to shrink his thoughts of God down into like these really small, containable thoughts. And when God becomes this really small, containable God, not almighty God, but this little God down here, Abraham does what we do when we have a small, containable little God. Abraham thought like this, God's not gonna be able to do that, so I'm gonna have to figure out a way to do that. And he does a workaround to try to get to the promise. He goes through Hagar, has Ishmael to to try to fulfill the promise that God said, no, Abraham, I'm gonna do this for you. But, But this is what Abraham does, and it's what we so often do. We begin to shrink God down And then we think there's no way that little God could actively work for me against all of these opposing forces. And so God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, no, I am not some small, containable little God for you. I am God Almighty. That's who I am. Uh, Marcus Dodd is a commentator and he wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis and listen to what he says about God's self-revelation. I am God Almighty. listen to how he says it. He says, it's God saying this to us. I'm God Almighty. It's God saying this. I am the Almighty God, able to fulfill our highest hopes and accomplish for you the brightest ideal that my words set before you. So there is no need of paring down the promise until it squares with human possibilities. There is no need of relinquishing one hope that that promise has begotten. There is no need of adopting some interpretation of my promises, which make it seem easier to fulfill and no need of striving to fulfill the things I promise to do for you in any second rate way. All possibility in life, in your life, my life, Abraham and Sarah's life, all possibility lies in this. I am the almighty God. That God is the one who says, I am for you. That it's, it's that God saying, I am for you. I am with you. I'm actively fighting on your behalf. It's that almighty God. So it says, if God is for us. Now just look at that word, if in verse 31. That is showing us that God is not for everyone. You, you see throughout the Bible that God is fighting for some people and that God is actively fighting against other people. So that if is alerting us to not, God is not for everyone. And if God being for you is the greatest thing that could be said about you, God being against you is the worst thing that could be said about you. So that if is massively important. That if of how do we go from being outside of this promise of God being for us to inside of that promise? That question could not be more important. How do we go from being outside the promise to inside that? How do we go, go from being outside of God being for us to inside of God being for us? The Bible talks about that like this through repentance and faith. How we go from being outside those promises to inside of those promises is we look at our life and we say no to all the sin that we know disqualifies us. We we turn from the sin that we know disqualifies us. But we don't just turn from the sin that we know, know disqualifies us before God. We also turn from the good things in our life that we think somehow qualify us before God. So we turn from all the bad and all the good in our life and we turn to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, throwing our life onto his perfect life, onto his death that was died in our place for our sin. And we come to God with these empty hands of faith, saying to God, I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus in my place, I am trusting that. And when we turn from our sin and repentance and throw our life up to God in faith, it's in that moment that God welcomes us into his family, bestows on us the blessing of being a son or daughter of God. And it's in that moment that God pledges for the rest of our lives into all eternity, he will be for us forever. That's how we go from being outside to inside the promises of God. It's in that moment when we throw our life upon Jesus that we can say no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by us or against us can block God's plan for us. Do you know the amazing thing about that idea of if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you know what what God is saying to us in that moment? He's saying that I am so for you that from this point forward, my sovereignty will make a servant out of everything in your life. Everything that enters into your life, my sovereignty is going to bend that for my purposes in your life. So when evil enters your life, when tragedy enters your life, when your sin enters your life, when other people's sin enter your life, God is saying they cannot block my purposes for you. Rather, all of those things are going to bow before me, God Almighty, and I'm going to bend those things for my plans and my purposes in your life. I'm gonna make, my my sovereignty is going to make servants out of every single thing that enters your life. And when I hear that, I don't know what that does to your soul when you hear that. I just don't know that there's a more reassuring, reassuring promise that God could give us. I don't know that there's more, a more comforting promise that God could say to us that if I'm for you, it doesn't matter what's against you. It doesn't matter who's opposed to you. And listen, this, this promise is not meant to be applied generally. It's not meant to be applied to like just say, hey, you all out there, if God's for you, who can be against you? It's meant to be applied personally. Like put your name in it. If God is for Rodney, who can be against me? What does it matter who's against me? I mean, put, put your name into that promise. That is meant to be owned and personally applied to your soul. If God is for you, who could be against you? Now ask the question, what, what is that promise intended to produce? What, what effect should that have on your soul, on my soul? What is God's aim by giving us that promise? That promise is meant to take weak, failing, and falling Christians like you and me. It's meant to take people just like you and me and insert into our heart a defiant hope. Yes, we're still gonna be weak. And yes, now with this promise, we can be heroic. So this is what it's meant to do to produce heroic Christians who embrace their weakness and their need, who who embrace this promise and now can act heroically in light of that promise. Let me just give you illustrations of how this plays out in the scriptures. Think about Moses. Do you remember him? Uh, God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I've got a job for you. I'm gonna use you to free my people out of Egypt. And when God says that to Moses, Moses brings out the laundry list of all the reasons why God has the wrong person. I mean, he just gives God all the reasons why God needs to go find a different person for that job. And do you remember what God says to Moses? He looks at Moses and says, Moses, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Now that sort of uh, language of I'll be with you in the Old Testament, that's covenantal language. That, that, that you could translate that. I'm gonna be for you, Moses. And if I'm for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. That's how you could translate that, that idea of I am with you in the Old Testament. So, so God comes to Moses and says, I'm gonna be with you. And do you remember what that promise did to Moses? That took a week falling, failing. I mean, just couldn't see how this could ever work out. And it made him heroic. It gave him the courage to stand in front of the most powerful person alive at the time and tell him, you Pharaoh need to let God's people go. Think about Hezekiah. Do you remember this story? Uh, The Assyrian armies come to conquer Israel and they're likely at that time, the the most powerful army on the face of the planet at that particular time. And in 2 Chronicles 32, here is how the story goes. Hezekiah looks at the people Israel, they're terrified because the Assyrian army is camped around them, about to crush them. And he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with them. For there are more with us than with him. Now, if I were sitting here, I'd be like, Hezekiah, are you insane? There is, there's not more of us than, than there are them. Do you see that army out there? They outnumber us like 10 to one. There are more of them than us. And Hezekiah goes on to say, for there are are more with us than with him. Verse eight, with him is an arm of flesh. That's all they've got out there is flesh, just, just human beings. But with us is the Lord, our God. And here is what that God who is with us is gonna do to help us and to fight our battles. It goes on, and the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do you see what it did? God being with them and for them. God reminding them that if, that if I'm for you, it doesn't matter what's against you. It produced heroic confidence in the lives of the people of God. Joseph is another great illustration of this. Joseph spent decades of his life suffering. He spent an extended period of his life in a prison cell, likely feeling all alone, right? But throughout his story in Genesis, uh, you see this little phrase pop up just repeatedly. God was with him. Could be translated the same thing. God is for him Then who in the world could be against him? God God is with him. And that, that God withness, that God being for him, allowed him to patiently endure years and years of suffering. Think about Paul. I mean, what enabled Paul to joyfully suffer, to just walk through with joy all of the hardships that came into his life? What allowed that is this deep down promise that just was pushed down into the deepest places of his heart. If God is for me, who can be against me? He's not gonna let anything into my life that he is not going to bend for his purposes and my good. This is what verse 31 is intended to produce, a defiant hope. Listen to J.I. Packer say this again. He says, grasp this, says Paul. He's just commenting on verse 31. Grasp this, hold on to it. If God is for you, who can be against you? Hold on to it. Let this certainty make its impact on you in regards to what you are up against at this very moment. I mean, we, if, you, if we could just survey the lives in this room, do you know what we would find throughout this room? People who have a million things opposing them right now people bruised and beaten, people in the midst of all sorts of hardship. And J.R. Packer's just, he's reminding us, take what Paul has just said and put it up against all of those things that are opposing you. And he goes on to say, and you will find in knowing God as your sovereign protector, that this sovereign protector who is irrevocably committed to you, here's what you're gonna find in knowing this sovereign protector. You're gonna find uh, both freedom from fear and new strength for the fight. I just wonder how many of us in the room this morning need new strength for the fight? That we just feel weary and discouraged and like everything in life is swamping us. And we need today for God to give us new strength for the fight. That's what Romans 8.31 is meant to give you. Now, I just wanna close with this. When it comes to this idea of God being for us, so who could be against us? And when you're thinking about that promise and how it plays out in your just everyday life, I want to give you this one warning. Be sure you don't judge the Lord and his promise towards you too quickly. Just be careful not to judge it too quickly. I was thinking uh, this last week again about a moment in college and honestly, especially the first year in college, I want to forget most of that year. I don't really re- want to remember it, but, but there's one particular memory that I'll just, I'll never forget this, this moment. Going into college, I thought that I was dating at the time the, uh, the person I'd probably marry. And about three quarters away through my freshman year in college, uh, and it's a longer story than I have time now to give, but that just became a crushing reality that that's not going to be so. Not, not going to happen. And I literally, I'll never forget a moment of just, I mean, just crying myself to sleep. Just absolutely heartbroken, crushed. And it's it's so ironic for me to look back at a moment like that and to know what I was thinking. In the moment, this is what I'm feeling. God could not be more against me right now. I mean, I, I, I was swept into all the opposition and I just remember feeling, man, where in the world is God in this moment? And it's so ironic for me to look back now and to see that in a lot of ways, that was the spark that it just really ignited a life with God that I had never even dreamed of before that. I get back after my freshman year into my sophomore year in college, and I'm now walking with the Lord pursuing the Lord, and all of a sudden God brings another lady beside me. Her name is Laura. And if I would have met Laura my freshman year, the 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 all the, the sort of like possibilities in that moment would have disappeared really quickly. Rightfully so. She should not have dated me then. But but God puts this little spark in my heart and he crushes me to, to do it. And so now it's our sophomore year, we meet, and and God gave me a wife that is just so precious, so precious. And it's so ironic to look back and to see in the moment that the the feeling that I had of God, there's no way you could be for me was the exact moment when God was showing me that he was undeniably for me. And, And all I'm trying to say is just don't judge the Lord too quickly. If, if, you're, if you're in the middle of one of those seasons where it feels like everything and God is against you, hang in there, don't, don't judge the Lord too quickly. In the first five or six years of Laura and I's marriage, we tried to have kiddos and couldn't. And so, I man, we struggled with infertility. It was so hard. I mean, I, when I just put it in a nutshell, it was like we were living for years and we would climb up the monthly sort of hill of hope and we would come tumbling down the hill of disappointment every month. Just such a hard extended season for us. And we were actually just having lunch with some friends this last week and just recounting some of that. And it's amazing for me to look back now at a moment where it felt like, God, you're you're, you're not for us. You're actually against us. And, And to see that in that moment, I think God in a lot of ways cemented our heart for the fatherless our desires for orphan care and adoption and fostering and those sort of things. And I would have never have dreamed at that moment that we would be planting a church 10 or 12 years later and that that heart that God had cemented in us in that really hard season would then be transferred into a church and our church would adopt that sort of adopting heart of, of God. I never would have dreamed that. And it's just so strange to look back in that moment and to see the very moment where it felt like God was against us was the very moment where God has been most for us. So just don't judge the Lord too quickly there. It reminds me of a couple of lines from the poet, hymn writer, William Cooper. He said it this way. "'Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, "'but trust him for his grace.'" For behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. That many of us right now, we feel the frowning providence of God. Life is hard, but behind that is a God who's for you. And if that God's for you, who cares who's against you? Let's pray together. want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And I know that there are many that came into the room this morning and it's, it's it's a mini miracle that you got here. Life is hard. You're in a season full of disappointments and hardships and suffering. If God is for you, who can be against you? Paul, in a lot of ways, is just reiterating what the psalmist says. In Psalm 121, where he says, from I look up to the hills from, from where does my help come from? I've got all these things opposing me, all these things that, are, that feel like they're against me. So, so where does my help come from? And the psalmist is doing exactly what Paul's doing. He's, he's lifting our eyes from our problems up to God when he says, here's where my help comes from, from, from God, the maker of heaven and earth. From this God who is for us, who is with us, who overpowers all the things that are against us. So, oh God, would you put a song in our soul today? God, would you strengthen weary hearts today? God, would you encourage discouraged souls? God, may we leave being able to sing to you a God who is so for us that it could never matter what's against us. Oh, God, help us. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.